Since 1971, Beauty O Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. By now you have almost certainly encountered the word puzzle game that is sweeping the nation, the world maybe. Dozens of your friends may be posting their score on their social media accounts. There's a friendly competition, lots of discussion, lots of learning. I'm speaking, of course, of Birdle, the best, in my opinion, of the Wordle puzzle derivations because it is the bird one. Or to be more precise, it's the bird code one. Yes, Alex Tomlinson, National Audubon staffer, has created this fun take on the immensely popular word game. But where Wordle is tired, stale, sold out to the New York Times, Birdle is fresh, new, authentic. Because it, more than anything I have ever seen, is encouraging birders to think about, uh, to to begin to understand those four-letter banding codes that I know many of you have been avoiding. Uh, The codes that have started many a listserv argument are now critical information. If you are a Birdle player, people who in the past might have deigned to learn them are now coding out their common species, learning the difference between the code bank swallow and barn swallow, or even black-throated green warbler and black-throated gray warbler. I I have found that Birdle is a little bit harder than Wordle because you can't lean on English language rules because the answers aren't really words, though they they can be. There are a few tricks, though. Do you start with N-O for northern, which begins 18 species of birds on the ABA checklist, or maybe A-M for American, which has 19 common with a whopping 36? All good strategies. According to the math, though, Baird Sandpiper is the best starting code, B-A-S-A, though I prefer Sora. You'll find your own path. You can find the link if you want to play in the show notes. On the show this week, we're talking about the most compelling vagrants of 2021. I realize saying that out loud, that is a word that means different things to birders than it does to the general public, but we're talking bird phenomena, rare birds, eruptions, wild wandering rarities. I'm joined by Amy Davis of the ABA's North American Birds Magazine and Tom Johnson of the ABA's Checklist Committee. What a panel. What a conversation. We'll have last year's Best Rare Birds after this week's New Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of January, first part of February 2022. No first records to report, but a winter eruption watch in Virginia, or maybe it's a winter eruption warning. I always get those mixed up. A bohemian waxwing was photographed at a feeding station, the birdbath to be precise, in Roanoke, Virginia, following the most recent snowfall. It was as you would expect among a large flock of cedar waxwings. Bohemian waxwing is typically one of the more northerly of the winter wandering songbirds and doesn't come south in numbers like evening grosbeak or pine siskin. Needless to say, this is a pretty significant record, only the third for Virginia and the first since 1975. There are a smattering of records of this species in the southeast in the 60s and 70s. It is not unheard of for them to tuck in with large flocks of cedar waxwings and just kind of 
wander wherever they go. There have been relatively recent records in Tennessee in 2016 and Texas in 2005, but that is about it. Also worth noting, the slow and steady increase in Caribbean rarities showing up in South Florida as they typically begin to do this time of year. Zenaida dove, thick-billed vireo, and yellow-faced grassquit have all been discovered in Monroe County, specifically the Florida Keys, in the last couple weeks. That is all I have for you this week. If you want the entire roundout, check out the Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash rba. We'll get those rarities as soon as they happen by joining the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Facebook. We might be well into 2022, but it's not too late to look back at the previous year, particularly if we're looking back at the remarkable bird and birding phenomena that we experienced in 2021. Uh, While the year started a little bit slowly, it built into what I think was a, a really good one for rare birds with amazing individuals and stories that captivated birders across the ABA area. And to talk about it, I am pleased to welcome two rare bird aficionados to the panel today, uh, Amy Davis, who edits and writes the Field Ornithology column for the ABA's North American Birds magazine, and our friend Tom Johnson of Field Guides and the Outbirding web series. Hello, Amy. Hello, Tom. Welcome to you both. Hey, Nate. Hey, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Hey, Amy. Hey, Nate. Thanks for, uh, thanks for chatting today. Yeah, so the topic of the day is rare birds of 2021 that could be rare bird phenomena that could be just interesting bird phenomena it doesn't necessarily have to be rare i suppose there were some other cool things going on um but just you know cool vagrants craziest vagrants all that stuff uh stuff that i'm sure that we all like to talk about with our birding friends uh, so what i've asked of you two and for me as well was to pick five interesting birds interesting phenomena from 2021 um, I don't know about you. It was actually kind of hard for me to narrow it down to just five. I've got some kind of also rands and honorable mentions. Uh, was that the case with both of you? Absolutely. I stopped at <laughs> nine. Oh man! <laughs> I, I thought we were doing the top 50 ABA birds of 2021. Right. So I'm going to have to vamp here. Yeah. Yeah. Right. What criteria did y'all use to determine what birds you put on your list? Sure. Um, my criteria was really subjective and I was definitely a little biased in favor of birds that I actually got to see or find. Like it. Sure. Yeah. I'm not going to argue with whatever criteria you want to ascribe to this list. My own, I'll, we'll back up a little bit, was just a novelty. Um, I also have a bias towards like really good stories. Uh, oh, absolutely. People, lots, lots of people get to see. I think that's yeah. really cool. Um, yeah, so it's not just like the rarest bird. It's there's got to be something more to it that makes it more interesting. I, I no, yeah. So apologies to the West Coasters. I am in Ocean County, New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> I also um, I factored in how cool did the bird look. I really like you know gave a lot of points to birds that were awesome and pretty and amazing but also some slipped in that are more plain and kind of an id challenge which i also really like um Mm. and it was really important to me to like how much hoopla did these birds attract you know was it likely to introduce non-birders to birding or at least some birders i love it when i'm like 
on a country road in the middle of nowhere and there's 20 other birders and the locals are stopping to ask what's going on and we explain yeah, to them you know adjust the scope let them get a look and they get to see something really cool you know so was it a spark bird for a lot of people that was something that factored into my list too absolutely yeah that that was great amy tom what what would do you look for in a really fascinating vagrant or phenomenon yeah, I think in most of these cases, for me, it was it was some multi-dimensional concept of uh, just shock mm. value, like something that I wasn't yeah. really expecting to happen. Combined with, uh, in some cases, a lot of people getting the chance to see it, like Amy was talking about, and in a few cases, just uh, sort of some expansions of what we think about these birds in terms of their distribution mm-hmm. or their biology. So I, I think. It was pretty open-ended, but uh, I, I ended up sticking more to the sort of rare vagrant individual birds rather than the the phenomena question, um, mm-hmm. just because there's only so many hours in the day to think about these things. Yeah. I'll, I'll start on with my number five bird of the year. I, it, was, it was relatively short, relatively brief stay, um, but it was one that I thought was really pretty amazing. And I'm talking of the yellow-browed warbler, at least we assume that it was a yellow-browed warbler in Mississauga, Ontario. It was at the end of April. Um, anytime we get one of those philoscopus, philoscopus, whatever you want to pronounce it, warblers in the, you know, away from like Alaska, it's it's pretty impressive. And this was a really cool one. What would you all think about this one? Yeah, I think this is a really cool record. Um, awesome that it's so far east in the continent. And I think mm-hmm. we can expect to see more yellow-browed warblers, especially with some uh, additional awareness in the North American birding community. Yeah. But if you look at records of yellow-browed warbler in Western Europe, even just in the United Kingdom, they've just been skyrocketing in recent years. And they're just really? getting more and more of these uh, yellow-browed warblers showing up. So what's your theory about which direction this bird came from? Because I think it would probably be about 50-50. Oh, yeah. I think it definitely came from Eurasia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm nice. I'm not sure uh, not sure whether it, it it made it all the way around, uh, you know, from an Alaska route, or if it kind of went over the top, or if it came from Europe. Um, probably one of the first two options, more likely than a uh, European route. You know, when this bird showed up, there was some confusion about whether or not it might be Hume's leaf warbler. I think you know, obviously, this Philoscopus warblers are famous for being really, really, really difficult to identify. I don't have a ton of experience with them in uh in the old world but um do you think at all either of you uh that hume's leaf warbler is a possibility and if it is um what are the odds that one of those could show up in the aba area too yeah i think i think that one's probably above my uh north american pay grade um i think i think just about anything's <laughs> possible with these right. uh, leaf yeah. warblers and yes as you mentioned they're really really difficult to identify but uh there's probably a, a handful of other species that might might be more likely to make it uh, into North America than than that one. Amy, your fir- your first bird. So yeah, I mentioned that I had trouble narrowing it down just to five. <laughs> My number five is small build Alenia, and that is, wow. I guess, kind of a phenomenon. Well, there were three that showed up, and there was only um, one prior. ABA area record that was totally na- nailed down in terms of identification of species. Um, there was one that turned up in Corpus Christi, Texas in May that was mm-hmm. uh, submitted via iNaturalist. 
then there was one that was banded at Tadoussac, Quebec in October. And the one that a lot of people got to see, and it was a real crowd pleaser, um, was in Waukegan Beach, Illinois in November. And this falls into the bucket of really plain birds that present a satisfying identification challenge, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I guess it depends on how you uh, define satisfying, but yes. Well, I mean, so identifying Elenia's is something that we have just, within the last couple of years, really been able to do. Gorlaria and Areta, and then um, Alvaro Jaramillo, too, were able to establish the diagnostic field marks for uh, small-billed Alinea pretty recently. And this is not a bird that I got to see personally, but I do enjoy that, you know, something that comes up on what's that bird, you know, and <laughs> you get to have that armchair ID challenge. And that's something that's satisfying mm-hmm. for me. And I think for most people that are following the whole rare bird um, story. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. This was my number two, actually. So we're jumping right <laughs> to the end. Um, hey, you have three, three birds in one year when there had only been one kind of halfway identified, although uh, people were pretty confident. Uh, in recent years that that was a small bill of Lania. I think, I don't know, is three the bare minimum for a phenomena? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> there were two in the fall, so maybe that's a thing. Yeah, amazing story. Austral migrant, bird from South America, southern cone of South America, turning up in North America. Amazing story. So many people got to see it. And also, like, kind of the bookend nature of the very first one being in the Chicago area, and then the last of the three that came in. Yeah, just wild. Isn't it? it, It's these sort of coincidences that are so amazing and just in birding generally. Cool, cool stuff. Obviously, yeah, very, very high on on anyone's list, I would think. Yeah. How about you, Tom? Well, I was going to just add on the small build Alania was like a, uh, it was was sort of my 5.5 or 6 on my list. Oh, Um, okay. Since Amy went with it, I'll I'll go with a different number five um, (laughs) conditional (laughs) conditional lists here. Um, I think it's, it's really cool, especially the, the record that surfaced on iNaturalist here, um, which also factored into a, an ABA first record um, later in 2021 with the Bat Falcon. Mm-hmm. Um, but just the fact that there are so many people out there taking photographs of things that catch their eye and then being able to sort of tap into the internet hive mind for identification, I yeah. think we're going to see more records like this. Um, and I as people sure. kind of get their eye in on what these Elanias look like, um, you know, even people that have never been to the Southern Cone, haven't seen a small build Elania in life, but there are lots of people that are developing these uh, experiences through looking at photos online. And I, I think mm-hmm. this is going to help detect more of these really cryptic uh, austral migrants in years to come. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I think that hive mind sort of concept is is part of what makes that happen. You know, obviously we have we have iNaturalist, we have eBird, we have various social media groups that talk about rare birds. Having all those available means that more and more and more and more people are even going to know what a small bill Elania is, let alone what it looks like. Or even just, you know, the idea that something that's slightly different of what you might be familiar with could be such a phenomenal record. Um, I'm glad you brought that out, that iNaturalist thing. It, even though it was like well, six weeks later uh, that the, the report actually came out, you know, someone put it on iNat and it wasn't really identified as anything. It was identified as an impid, if I'm 
correct and incorrectly, but you, you just got identified and people just kind of let it go. And then someone comes back, uh, you know, six weeks later and says, hey, wait, hold on a second. Um, this is something much more interesting. Maybe people are a little bit frustrated that they may have missed the opportunity to chase that bird, uh, an opportunity that came later uh, in the year, at least two more times. Yeah. Really cool stuff. Really great. I, you know, the, the the fact that birding is getting out there among more people and this sort of uh, comprehension of the things around us and the uh, openness to really, really wild records like this um, is, is going to be great, both for things like uh, the yellow bell, yellow browed warbler and this small bill lania. Great choice. Tom, what's your number five? Uh, number five is actually a bird that I didn't even know about until this month, January 2022. And that's because uh, I read an article by Christian Nunes of oh. Colorado about an experience he had last year in the Rockies in Arapahoe Roosevelt National Forest in mid-July. And uh, Christian had gone up and was doing some camping and also recorded some crossbills that were uh, around his his campsite. And turns out after some uh, analysis after the fact that the, the the flight calls of these birds match up with Kasha crossbill the previously thought to be endemic to southern idaho uh <laughs> relatively newly described species and i just thought this was a really cool record for a couple of reasons it, it kind of underscores the importance of making field recordings uh even if you're just documenting what you you think at the time may be the, the regular species, the regular type of bird for your area with a little bit of additional investigation, you might find out, wow, this is like actually a changing our, uh, our fundamental understanding of what this, this bird is all about. You know, Kasha crossbill is uh, thought to have evolved kind of in isolation uh, in the absence of tree squirrels in two mountain ranges in, in Kasha, County, uh, Kasha County in southern Idaho. And um, the idea that there are actually uh, a few of them out wandering around in the Intermountain West, I think, is is really, really, really cool. So, kudos to Christian for making those recordings and and uh, coming back and revisiting that record in in uh, in retrospect. Yeah, it makes you wonder how many, like like as in the case with the small Lania, as with the case of the yellow warbler, how much are you missing when you're you know, not necessarily paying attention to subtle stuff. Yeah. Um, how many Kasha crossbills are running around in the interior West? I like they skipped over Utah, didn't they? They would have had to fly over Utah. So maybe there too. I'll move on to my, my number four, moving on up the list. Um, this one I thought was really, uh, unlikely. I was a first ABA record and I do like to, I would like to, you know, throw a bone to our friends out in Hawaii as well for finding this one. Not, not only one, but two, actually. Um, Inca tern, a species primarily known from the west coast of South America. Um, you know, one of those Humboldt current specialties, really flashy looking big dark tern with a, a yellow mustache that looks like some sort of 1800s villain. Um, but yeah, they, they found the first one on South Point. On the big island of Hawaii, which is the furthest south point of Hawaii, which makes sense from a bird that's primarily found from South America. And if that wasn't enough, a second Inca tern was uh, found on the island of Oahu later. And that bird uh, is still there, as far as I know. <laughs> uh, from the you know recording of this podcast, it was discovered back in the summer, still hanging around, still showing off to anyone who wants to go find it. 
Um, not sure that bird's going to go back to uh, Peru, but pretty pretty wild record considering that it had to cross um, you know half the Pacific Ocean. Um, but if you're going to end up anywhere in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, Hawaii being just about the only point of land in there is is going to be where you're going to end up. You know, Hawaii obviously has a ton of really wild records, and this is another one. First AVA area record, really cool bird. Yeah, that one made my list too, although nice. it pains me to put it at honorable mention. <laughs> <laughs> one of the one of the extra nine yeah yeah but i had to you know just by virtue of the whole handlebar mustache thing happening <laughs> it's a flashy looking yeah, bird oh, yeah. and um really cool i don't know that many people had that on their list of potential aba yeah, area definitely firsts. not <laughs> you know even with the weirdness that is hawaii um you know just about anything can turn up there i would imagine um a bird from the cold waters of western south america uh, showing up in in Hawaii is it was definitely not on a lot of people's radar, but you know, maybe maybe it should be. Yeah, we ought to be keeping an eye out for more swallow-tailed gulls and uh, maybe a waved albatross or two. Why not, Amy? Move up, move up your list. Let's see. What so in fourth place, I have uh, two plovers. Um, honorable mention: I have Pacific golden plover. And I guess these didn't really attract a whole lot of attention on maybe the whole, you know, national or ABA area level, but there were um, Pacific Golden Plovers in uh, North Carolina, Florida, New Jersey, and Massachusetts this year. Yeah, that was something. Yeah, and um, they do present something of an ID challenge. (laughs) For sure. As Tom knows. (laughs) I mean, I found one uh, locally in May, and it was pretty cool. And thanks again, Tom, for helping with that ID. But they are actually, there are about the same or maybe fewer records of Pacific Golden Plover in the states where they turned up, with the exception of Florida. than the other plover that's in fourth place on my list, which is Northern Lapwing. Yeah, we have about the same number of records, come to think of it, in North Carolina. I think we have two Pacific Golden Plovers and two Northern Lapwings. So there you go. Yeah, I think, gosh, three for Pacific Golden Plover and four or five for Northern Lapwing in New Jersey. That's, Something like it's that. It's wild to think that there's more Lapwings than Pacific Golden Plovers. Yeah, and the, well, there were definitely more individual Lapwings that turned up in the East Coast this yeah. year, um, starting with... Uh, Newfoundland in November, where I think they're about annual. And then in December, we got the mother load, I guess, from Quebec, Maine, <laughs> Nova Scotia, Connecticut, New York, Maryland, New Jersey, and finally Virginia Beach uh, this month. Yeah. Yep. All the way down to Virginia. And I have Lapwing on my list because of its looks, which, yeah, it does <laughs> weigh heavily with me. And again, very subjective list here. Um, I can't decide whether I think northern lapwings are elegant or kind of goofy. So, you know. <laughs> little from yeah. column A, little from column B. <laughs> but one of those unmistakable birds that um, the one in New Jersey was found by someone, I think an, a non-birder, someone that uh, encountered the birding community first through this crazy finds and it's been, I guess, 10 years since the last time we had northern lapwings locally. Um, yeah, about And 10 so years. a whole yep. new set of birders that had never gotten to see them around here 
it was, they're definitely crowd pleasers wherever they show up. And a few of them were, you know, cooperative, stuck around and hundreds of people got to come see. The thing about the Pacific Golden Plover, I think is really neat as well, because, you know, I, I feel like that is a bird that sort of, as we were talking about, you know, maybe there's a theme here. Um, people become more comfortable making that identification and then people start finding more of them. It's almost like a foregone conclusion. Um, you need one and people get a feel for it. And, you know, maybe these birds that in the past might've been written off as American golden plovers suddenly get picked up as Pacific golden plovers. Um, and maybe that bird turns out to be more common than people have thought historically, or more, at least more regular, I should say. Oh yeah. Um, I am curious if, if you have any thoughts about that. It does seem like, you know, one state gets a Pacific golden plover and then all the states start finding Pacific golden plovers. Yeah, I definitely. Um, it's not, it's not something that was on people's radar so much out here. Yeah. It's the same here as well. Yeah. Kudos to you, Amy, for finding that New Jersey bird. I knew that that made a lot of people very, very happy in May this year. And, um, it was, uh, it was so cooperative for much of its stay um, out uh, there yeah. at Tuckerton. That yep. I think uh, I think people really got to enjoy that, which was cool. I think uh, another bird that kind of falls into this category of of you know that's kind of sweeping uh, at least the east and and also and also California and the West Coast in recent years is common ringed plover, and um, mm-hmm. this is something Similar that I situation. imagine has has been moving through North America as kind of a stealth migrant for for many years and. We're finally uh, starting to pick them out during migration, yeah. although not in New Jersey yet. That's uh, maybe <laughs> next year. Yeah, we got that's another bird that we got um, not all that long ago as well in North Carolina. In fact, uh, both common ring plover and Pacific golden plover have been added to the state list in the last five years. Um, you know, people getting more confident with that identification, more comfortable, more aware. Uh, all those things are playing a role, I imagine. All right, Tom, you want to move up your list? Absolutely. Yep. Uh, number four on my list is taken up by a bird that actually breeds in the ABA area now, uh, now that the ABA area has been redrawn, and that is wedge-tailed <laughs> shearwater. Oh, um, good ones. Yeah, yes. little, little tip of the cap awesome. there to North Carolina uh, in, yeah. in May during the spring blitz that uh, Brian Pattison and Kate Sutherland have, where they go out and do back-to-back-to-back pelagic trips. Uh, out of Hatteras, North Carolina, uh, Kate spotted a light morph wedge-tailed shearwater behind the boat, and it stuck around for a little while. They have absolutely gorgeous photos of it. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. this is a, a Pacific species that um, was really unexpected. Although off of Hatteras, they're they're beginning to expect the dramatically unexpected <laughs> seabirds from all truth. corners of the earth, and and then to kind of compound this. In conjunction with Hurricane Ida at the end of August, uh, Peter Plage photographed a, a wedge-tailed shearwater, a light morph wedge-tailed shearwater in Florida. And um, I think it's just amazing to have uh, records of you know, two, two well-spaced records of these birds from the Atlantic Basin yeah. in the same calendar year. Pretty, pretty incredible. In Pinellas County, no less, on the Gulf Coast, which is almost like an extra layer level of difficulty because, uh, you know, Gulf of Mexico is relatively seabird poor, at least compared to the Gulf Stream. But they had that and a Bulwars petrel, even more, almost even more amazing um, with, in conjunction with Hurricane Ida. Yeah, great, great choice. Amazing birds, for sure. Um, and in a line, you know, what was it just last year or was it the year before? 
uh, the last two years have kind of blurred in my mind because of the pandemic. But the yeah, obviously you think of the Tahiti petrol that was turned up uh, off of Hatteras as well. Wedge-tailed shearwater. Yeah, another one. What, what are they going to get next year? Who knows? All right, so I'll, I'll uh, move on down our list as we uh, move along. My number three was a bird that is known in the ABA area, uh, but it's still fairly unusual. And this was uh, the farthest north record of it, and uh, one that happened, what you know, made my list because one, um, a lot of people got to see it. Two, uh, it was an absolutely gorgeous uh, individual of this species, and that is uh, the yellow grosbeak that turned up in uh, southern Colorado, Huerfano County, um, at a feeder no less. And, and then tons of people got to go see it. It was in May, late May again. Um, Yellow Grosbeak, Huerfano County in Colorado. Um, just an absolutely stunning bird. You know, Grosbeaks in general, all of our Grosbeaks are, are really beautiful. But I think, you know, the combination of this bright yellow, canary yellow bird with an absolutely massive bill, like evening Grosbeak-esque bill, um, coming to a feeder where everyone got amazing photos of it. This is a bird that has not been super well photographed in the ABA area, if I recall correctly. I've not seen any many, very many really nice photos, but you know they they got them this time. Um, pretty fantastic. Hundreds of birders got to see it, and uh, part of a trend of these kind of weird southern western Mexico birds that are turning up in places like southern Colorado that we saw just recently uh, with Rufus backed robin, uh, not too far away, ruddy ground dove, golden crowned warbler. A lot of lot of birds of this ilk in southern Colorado these days, um, but. I, I thought it was great. There was a kind of a circus atmosphere around this one, which I thought was really nice, really nice, and moved it up uh, on my list. Yeah, if you haven't seen the photo, um, there there's some great photos out there. Do yourself a favor, look them up on Macaulay Library. Uh, mm-hmm. Johanna Beam has a, a spectacular oh, photo of the bird in profile that uh, just blew my socks off. Yeah. All right. So please move on, Amy. You got another one. Okay. In third spot, I have the Hearman's Gall. The East Coast oh, here was called. They were <laughs> honorable mention first for me. state records in Georgia, South Carolina, New Jersey, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island. And I just think that Hearman's gull is one of the sharpest looking ABA area gulls. I just, I just sure. adore it. I don't know. <laughs> and um, the whole wandering hoopla aspect of it. Where was it going to show up next? You know. Um, uh, Hundreds of people That's got to theme. see this one individual bird, but like it wasn't always a gimme. So there was definitely some suspense, you know, um, and maybe a little bit of Twitter's anxiety happening <laughs> if you chase this one. <laughs> <laughs> and there are not many East Coast records outside of a handful from Florida and Virginia. So yeah. that was definitely an exciting bird for me and one that I got to see it along with many, many other birds. Luckily. Yeah, I uh, I may have left that one off because I was sort of ticked off at it because it had to have flown over <laughs> North Carolina at least twice yeah. and no one spotted it in the state. As far as I know, it's still hanging around. I think around. you're not it's the only one time to time in South Carolina. with that uh, schadenfreude happening. <laughs> I know. I, like, I don't even need to see it. I just wanted to add it to the state list because we're actually getting quite close to 500. And so every every bird helps. And this the fact that this one passed over us not once, but twice... <laughs> Was uh, a little bit of a little bit of a shot in the eye. Great, great bird, fantastic. Love those stories of birds that wander up and down widely. I think we'll get to that a little bit. Um, and the people follow along. I remember a, a similar situation with a zone-tailed hawk 
a few years ago that was seen in like Rhode Island or Connecticut and this kind of went down the coast, also stopped short of North Carolina. Not that I'm bitter, but um, <laughs> a really flashy adult Herman's goal as well, which, which I, not that the young birds aren't, aren't nice, but it was just a really handsome. Yeah. He was a real beauty. Mm-hmm. Sorry, not to rub it in. <laughs> oh no, no, it was a cool bird. I gotta, I gotta appreciate that at least, at least. <laughs> All right, Tom. If if you have something to say about the Herman School, feel free. Otherwise, you can move on to uh, move on to your next one. Not a ton of overlap this time. Very very nice. Well, we've got a wide yeah, variety yeah, of, of birds we have here. Yeah, we're picking a great a great diversity here. Yeah. Oh, I'm only salty at that Herman's gull because I didn't get it for my yard list here. Uh, <laughs> oh, man, did, even worse, even worse. <laughs> did did manage to see it a few miles down the road here in Cape May, and uh, did it, Michael it, O'Brien get it on his yard list? I'm afraid not, but oh, uh, it, it mostly stuck to the uh, to the coast of Delaware Bay, and and when it was here, it was feeding a lot with the scrums of uh, laughing gulls and red knots, and it was. Uh, uh, eating the horseshoe crab eggs during the, oh, the spring nice. horseshoe Taking crab spawn. Oh, nice. Taking advantage of the local delicacies. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, for my number three, uh, I'm going to go to Alaska to the North Slope and um, wanted to, to nod toward the rufous-tailed rock thrush that mm-hmm. Newt Hansen found June 24th that was seen the following day as well by uh, a bunch of birders that were lucky to be in the area. This was at Utkeagvik, uh, formerly known as Barrow, at the, the northernmost uh, tip of Alaska there. And not only is this an incredible-looking songbird um, that, that breeds across uh, Europe and into Central Asia, uh, but it's about 3,000 miles or so out yeah. of range to the, to the nearest edge of its range in the Old World. This is a bird that um, you know, kind of breeds across a, a strip from, in Europe and, and Central Asia and then winters in east africa and the middle east and you know really doesn't have have anywhere anywhere near alaska on its on its regular itinerary so so this is one of these true vagrants that that came from far afield you look at this bird and then you look at how far it came and then you start looking at other birds that have similar sort of ranges and you know the possibilities of birds in alaska just like opens up so wide and and it had help that it was so flashy i mean it was just a really really nice looking bird and they got some nice photos of it and um this was an honorable mention for me i didn't put it on if only because well i mean it's an aba area first and uh which is pretty special it, it was far away not a ton of people got to see it but the people that did get to see it were yeah that's alaska birding for you right you're you're lucky you're you're hoping against hope for a bird like this and not a ton of people get to see them when they do but and you get to be one of those lucky few that has a really amazing story about your Alaska trip to tell your friends next time you're you're around um beautiful bird amazing yeah it reminds me a little bit of the Paula's rose finch that was found on St. Paul uh, a few years ago in terms of the range you know that sort of central asian range of a bird that you wouldn't necessarily expect to get all the way over uh to Alaska but that manages to um now the sky's the limit on on what other kind of birds that you could get that have similar sort of range and simpler, similar sort of vagrant potential, um, which is something that we love to think about and speculate about too. Um, yeah, so I, I will move on to my number. My number two was actually the small bill Delania uh, situation. So we've already talked about that. I don't want to jump on my number one yet because the fact that we have not talked about this bird yet 
means that it's probably very high on your list as well. So I won't, I won't jump the gun a little bit if people are waiting to hear about it. I know I've had some emails from people who want to hear about it, but we'll talk about it. But first, I'll, I'll throw it back over to you, Amy. So I actually have honorable mention. Oh, sure. We can talk honorable yeah, mentions. Yeah, in too. second place, <laughs> I have Limpkin. Because oh, Limpkin. It was a good Limpkin. Yeah, mm-hmm. there were a few state firsts in Arkansas, Minnesota, and Texas. Minnesota. And it's so strange to me to think that this 2021, that was the first record of Limpkin in Texas, because I feel like I keep hearing about more Limpkins in Texas. And then there ended up being like, what, four or five Limpkins in Texas by the end of the summer? A lot. And there were others Crazy. that turned yeah. up. They were not state first, but they were still exciting. and. um Illinois, Maryland, Louisiana, mm-hmm. North Carolina, and Tennessee. And of course, they're already breeding in Louisiana, despite only having yeah. shown up there in a, a 2017, I believe. They are yeah. living it up there with the invasive apple <laughs> snail situation happening. And yeah. I just thought they were pretty interesting. But taking top honors for, well, second place top honors, I should say, mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. Rosie at Spoonville. Oh yeah, similar sort of situation going on. Yeah, it's. Yeah. I mean, though not without without the apple snails. Without the apple snails, yeah. it's again in that sort of category where I put my northern lapwing of like, is it this elegant, beautiful pink bird, or is it a little bit goofy? You know, it depends on how far away you are <laughs> when you see them. I think <laughs> if you get a close up, that head is weird looking. Oh yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> Maybe a little bit less so with the juveniles, which is what we were seeing yeah. out of range. Yeah. Um, and Rosie Spoonbill gets major points with me for just the ubiquity of them. So mm-hmm. if you wanted to see that and it was out of range where you lived and you, you, know, you most likely got your opportunity to see that bird. Um, yep. There were state firsts this year or last year in uh, Massachusetts, Michigan, and New Hampshire, plus there was a first for Washington, D.C. And I know in New Jersey, we had at least three individuals, probably more. Um, and I got to find one in my home patch, and that was super exciting for me. Very and nice. the other nice thing about them is that, you know, sometimes you see birds that turn up out of range, and they're really just kind of a storm wave or a bird that you might just worry about a little bit. Like, is that bird okay? You know? These guys showed up because they had most likely a really successful breeding season. So mm. that's why we're seeing a lot of post-breeding, you know, dispersal of the young birds uh, well north of the usual range. And that's always a nice thing, you know. There might have been some high water levels happening that affected that too. But for the mm. most part, I think, you know, we can assume that that species had a successful season. and. Yeah. That's why we were seeing them. Yeah. I uh I got one for my county nice. this year, Guilford County, North Carolina. I think it was like the second county record ever. Uh, the first one was several years ago and I dipped on that bird several times, so I was glad to finally see one. And then later in the summer, I actually found two more <laughs> while I was chasing a black-billed whistling duck, which had a similar sort nice. of uh situation in in the state, also in my county. So it was a good year. It was a good year for kind of southern waifs uh, up where I am in the western Piedmont, which is not a place where those birds tend to show up very often. Great bird. Who doesn't love to see a, a big pink bird with a weird spoon bill? Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a crowd pleaser every time. Absolutely. And you can pull in, you know, 
random bystanders to look at it yeah, and they'll sure. appreciate it because it's so cool looking, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, great one. I'm glad that we talk a little bit about those phenomena that happened this year. Sometimes they get forgotten <laughs> because we had such a great, you know, single one-off rarity year. But um, that Limpkin, that Limpkin push, that Spoonbill push, uh, really amazing stuff. Uh, you never know whether or not we're going to get those from year to year. I can't imagine it's going to be a year 2022 will be as good. But uh, who knows? Once those Limpkins have set their stakes, you know, where are they going to go next? Maybe, maybe that's the next one. Look out, Great Plains and Interior West. <laughs> Tom, what's your number two before we jump on to the, the big one? Yes. In, uh, in second place for me is uh, a bird that Doug Gotchfeld found in Prospect oh, Park in Brooklyn Man, at the beginning of April, actually April 1st. Uh, so, you know, who knows if this <laughs> was for real or if he was yeah. just making this up as a, <laughs> as a prank. But um, no, the reality is he, he found this uh, unusual looking Martin, Progny Martin, that... Um, as best he or anyone can tell, is a gray-breasted marten. Um, and this bird stuck around for a few days and flew around in front of hundreds, maybe even thousands of people uh, walking around in Prospect Park in, uh, you know, right in the middle of New York City. And uh, it, was, it was an incredible bird. Um, it was pretty clear that it was uh, much smaller than would be expected for a purple marten. Mm-hmm. And uh, Doug did did really well to to pick it out and stay with it and, and document it. And he actually managed to make an audio recording of it. And the visual field marks and the the audio is is pretty consistent with gray breasted martins from Central America. So it's just an incredible record. There there are a mm-hmm. few uh, previous uh, North American or ABA, I should say, records um, of specimens that were collected in south texas but in terms of modern records it's it's pretty much a blank slate for gray-breasted martin even though it's a, a very common bird in in much of the new world tropics yeah another another austral migrant another kind of difficult id that was pieced together over a little bit of time a lot of people got to see it a lot of good stuff going on with that one i had com- <laughs> completely slipped my mind a really fun record um always nice when a bird like that shows up in a place where so many people can get to see it and enjoy it with you know people are taking a train to prospect park uh to to see this bird amazing um and, and really amazing find by doug for sure did you see that one amy did you get up for that one i am very much regretting not changing chasing that uh. one <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah Really cool bird. I'm, I'm glad that one made uh, the list for sure. Um, all right. Let's, let's talk about the big one. Uh, I think this number one was the same uh, for all of us because we haven't talked about it yet. Um, the extraordinary travails of the uh, stellar sea eagle across the continent, finally in Maine, where it has been present for a couple weeks now, or about a week, week and a half or so. Alaska last year. Texas, maybe. But certainly Quebec, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Massachusetts, and finally Maine. Um, it helps that it is one of the most dramatic birds of prey in the world, a bird that so many people have seen on nature documentaries, in books, and dreamed about turning up uh, in the northeast of the ABA area, uh, eastern Canada and New England. Um, incredible, incredible record, incredible story. I know, uh, Tom, you've seen it. Amy, did you get up there to see it as well? Um, I am hoping to make that trip in the next few days. Hey, who knows? <laughs> it may still be there. Um, in your wildest, vagrant, 
considering dreams, would you have expected this bird to turn up where it did? Yeah, no. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, I have the same answer. No, I, I, uh, I've been thinking about this a lot, and this, this is the sort of bird that, uh, you know, I'd, I'd feel really excited to, to even have a chance to see one in Western Alaska if that, that right. ever came to happen. Um, but no, I never really, never, never really dreamed that one was going to make it to the, the eastern lower 48 or, or eastern Canada. So this is just, just a shock to me. And uh, Tim Healy was the New York area birder who did a lot of the detective work to determine that this, this bird had traveled from Denali to eastern, the eastern part of the continent. Tim Healy, yes. Yeah, Tim did a, a lot of uh, legwork looking at the, the yeah. wear of the, the primaries and the, the amount of white in the wings. And um, yeah, I think there's a pretty compelling case to be made that the, the bird that was originally photographed on the Denali Highway in interior Alaska. Uh, may actually be the same yeah. uh, stellar sea eagle that showed up in uh, in eastern Canada and then in New England more recently. Yeah, um, lots of consistencies there with the the wing pattern for sure. Yeah, and that was that bird was in Denali in November of 2019. No, 2020. 2020. So it was uh you know almost uh, over a year ago, well over a year ago, and uh, has been kind of I guess tooling around North America. What are your thoughts about the Texas sighting, which very much seems to be an outlier? but it was photographed at a, a reservoir on the Texas Gulf Coast. What are your thoughts as to whether this bird is the same one that people are seeing in Eastern Canada? Like, I'm, I'm open to that idea. I think that it is as likely as any other, any of the other prospects that have been put out, like that being a two birds or some bird that escaped from, a, from a, some captivity in some capacity. I don't know what to think about that bird. It's such a weird outlier for this whole story. Yeah, um, that that Texas uh, record where it was it was photographed um, on a perch. Uh, I think that was March of last year, March, March twenty twenty one. Yeah. And as far as I'm aware, there aren't any flight photos with with mm -hmm. spread open That's wings. Correct. So as you say, this is going to be kind of left to speculation whether mm -hmm. this is the same individual or not. I know the the Texas Bird Records Committee has already endorsed that record. Yep. It's mm -hmm. accepted, and. Um, I guess my answer is why not? Yeah, I, um, yeah, you know that's sort of where I am. How many of these things can really be flying around out out in the wild in the, you know, the the well populated areas of North America? Yeah. I, I don't, I don't really have a good explanation for it. For sure, for sure, it's it's such a wild record, and uh, which I would think would be unbelievable, almost unbelievable, if the bird, if Stellar Seagull hadn't turned up in Eastern Canada and uh, is still present on the main coast. Um, yeah, I don't have any other better explanation so one of the great uh, bird records mysteries of all time for the aba area we do have a few i mean if a citrine wagtail can turn up in mississippi maybe a stellar sea eagle can turn up in in texas who knows yeah it should be noted at the time of the recording of this podcast where uh, it's the 27th of january mm -hmm. the stellar seagull has been mia in right? maine since monday the 24th of january okay so look out your window it could be listening <laughs> right, to this right. podcast through your no matter window where right you now. are in the world why not <laughs> tom you went you went and saw it what is it like seeing this bird it was absolutely incredible you know first of all there there are lots of people around um looking for it uh, which was it's sort of a convivial exciting atmosphere to be in um but then just 
getting to see it, it is a it is a supremely large bird. Um, <laughs> it looks like a total behemoth. Yeah. Yeah. No yeah. It's absolutely huge. I got to see it in flight um, with bald eagle and with with common ravens, and it it really made both of those birds look very very small. Um, wow. And as we all know, those are not small birds. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it's a, an incredibly striking bird, and uh, yeah, wanted to just thank my parents for uh, for hosting. Oh, nice! Um, a small group of friends when we went up there uh, <laughs> that made our uh, our ability to to go look for it a little bit easier. So yeah. that, was, that was great. I think the extent to which this bird has captured a lot of people, even in the non birding world, uh, is really phenomenal. You know, we've seen stories in, in a lot of major uh, media publications. It's amazing. There's been so many stories on uh, national news outlets mm-hmm. about this bird. Yeah, it goes to show that the eagles are. I don't know. Stellar seagull in particular is just such an imposing bird. And I think a lot of, a lot of people are somewhat familiar with it. Um, maybe, you know, for such a relatively range restricted species, you know, East Asia, uh, Korea and Japan, um, this is a relatively well-known bird, you know, it's well photographed. A lot of people have seen it in books and, and movies. Um, people sort of know, and you know, I think people intuitively get, this is a massive Eagle with a giant yellow bill. Um, it's cool no matter what. You know, look at people who love bald eagles. This one's even bigger. <laughs> this is even bigger and better. Yeah. Have you seen the eagle? <laughs> Have you seen the eagle? Right. Capital. Have capital you letters. seen the eagle? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's worth noting. You know, if you if you're not familiar with the the range of this bird, go check out a map. Go pull up Birds of the World and uh, uh, or eBird and and just check it out. It's got a tiny range over mm-hmm. there in East Asia, and. There are only something like five thousand of these these birds on the planet in the wild, and uh, it's it's quite a rare bird. And to have one of them kind of go on walkabout and make its way all the way across North America to the East Coast is uh, is just truly surprising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, I should mention a couple uh, all honorable mentions that I have just in mind. It's hard to leave a ABA first off any of these lists, but the bat Falcon in Texas, which we mentioned very briefly, um, maybe left uh, a little bit low because I think it was somewhat expected. Uh, it does get actually quite close yeah. to, the, to the Texas border. Um, but still does not change the fact that that is a truly amazing bird. Absolutely. And, um, a lot of great photos taken. A lot of people getting really excited about that. Um, I, I had, Briefly, Blue Mockingbird, the Blue Mockingbird in New Mexico on my list, which I think is, um, I think this might be the best photographed individual of the species ever in the ABA area. <laughs> and arguably, you know, maybe the best photographed bird ever, individual of the species ever, period. Um, showing really well and has been present for a really long time at Carlsbad Caverns National Park. And um, I don't know if there's anything that we left off that you guys want. just want to kind of give a shout out. There's a, there've been a lot of really cool birds. Shout out to the year. Lesson Seed Eater. That's less than seed eater, I know. Perhaps the fact that we left it off the list suggests that we have some thoughts about its provenance. <laughs> I mean, I know, I know yeah. you wrote that really great th- that piece for uh, North American Birds, Amy, about, you know, it's not impossible that uh, it could show up, that a less than seed would end up, but it, it is a pretty wild, wild record. Oh, yeah. And it's yeah. not, maybe not totally unprecedented either. There you go. That's right, because there have been a few other few other seed eaters um, that have turned up. Oh, I'd throw out the uh, the short tailed albatross that was hanging out close to shore in California oh, that right. a lot of people got to got to see yeah. on yeah. different boat trips, and 
um, the Eastern Toei in California. That yeah, what are they going to do about uh, that I one? think it's it's probably still under discussion as we <laughs> as we record this. But yeah. uh, Eastern Toei that was that was working in some unusual sounding calls into its repertoire. Lots of lots of awesome birds from across the continent out there. I had a nice little fake out plan for you. <laughs> oh, do, oh do uh, tell. honorable mention Stellar's wait for it Eider. <laughs> oh yeah, the one in, in uh, was it North Quebec. Quebec. Yeah. It showed up in May and then again in October. Yeah. Um, very few yeah. records. Twenty twenty one was a really good year for Georg Stellar. Finally bringing it back. <laughs> One hundred and fifty years later. <laughs> Amy Davis and Tom Johnson, you can find their work. Uh, Amy Davis is uh, writes the Field Ornithology column for North American Birds on the ABA website. You can find a lot of her great stuff. She has a lot of really interesting insight into some other phenomena that have occurred, bird, bird phenomena that have occurred, and I'm sure that'll continue through 2022. And Tom Johnson, you can find him a lot of places, but he does the Outbirding web series, uh, or is part of the Outbirding web series team. Uh, definitely check those out as well. They are a lot of fun. Um, thank you so much, Amy and Tom. And uh, I hope you have uh, a great 2022, uh, as good as 2021 was in Rare Birds. You too. Thanks, Nate. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, Nate. Keep up the great work with the podcast. It's Absolutely. always a lot of fun to listen to. I really appreciate that. Thanks. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support it by supporting the ABA with your membership. There are many benefits. I have I have shared them many times in this spot, but I'll, I'll do it again. You get discussed to our partners. You get our great magazines. You get opportunities to travel with us. You can get information about all of that at aba.org slash join. I have some shout outs to make this week to Kirby Smith of Houston, Texas, Mark Pellegree of Roswell, Georgia, Matt Estes of Austin, Texas, Mary Donaldson of Cincinnati, Ohio, John Newton and the Newton family of Baltimore, Maryland, Dan Patrick, and the Patricks of Lexington, Kentucky, Lawrence Crespo of Henderson, Nevada, and Karen Tomty of Chenhassen, Minnesota, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted this podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA. Technical production is by John Lowry, who suggests that Horned Lark is the perfect opening move in Birdle because it's a friendly hola. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese. And while David starts with like the standard red-breasted sapsucker, pretty, pretty good choice, it seems a little on the nose that Greg leads with Great Egret. You can find us online at aba.org and on social media most everywhere as American Birding Association, on Twitter as ABA. I saw Birdle last week with a phrase common to any parent of teenage children. Willet, piping plover, common merganser, hooded merganser, or rather, will people come home? Questions, comments can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy out there, folks. Till next week.